Well, church, this morning we're going to talk about the simplest and most fun con- uh, topic in the Scripture. It's one that, like, no one disagrees about, no one has any questions about, uh, and the church certainly hasn't been arguing about it for 2,000 years. And it's this little word called predestined. Anyone ever heard that word before, predestined? Like, that's the, like, there's no, there's not going to be any disagreement in the room when we're done here. It's going to be so nice to just talk about this calmly and clearly. And actually, you know, obviously I'm kidding. Uh, we're, we're coming up to a topic in Romans where the church has been uh, debating this thing almost since it was written. Uh, almost 2,000 years. But I do want to give you some good news. Today, I am going to resolve all of it for you. Isn't that great? You're not going to have any questions. Again, there's going to be no conflict. It's going to be fantastic. No, no, of course, that's not going to happen. We're just looking at three verses in Romans 8 today, and I'm going to read them to you. If you open your Bible, uh, that would be great, either uh, on your phone, if you have one with you. Otherwise, there's a Bible nearby under a chair, uh, and we're just going to be right there in Romans 8, starting in verse 28 and going through verse 30. And it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want to tell you something else, that I think this passage, the most important thing about this passage is not how we understand predestination. Okay, we're going to get to what is the most important thing in a moment. But I want to just kind of get this out of the way. And I want to talk to you about what is, what is kind of like a, a biblical, biblical perspective on this challenging topic. One of the things that I hear a lot is, People asking the question, is predestination even biblical? Is it even biblical? And I think what they mean by that often is, is this particular view of what predestination is biblical? Because the word really is right here in the scripture. Right here in Romans 8.29, it says that God predestined people. And then it says it again in verse 30, that God predestined people. So we know that predestination is a biblical concept. The question is, what does it mean? And what is it referring to? And I think a lot of us, we get in this, um, we get caught up in this question, you know, do we have free will or does God predestine us? And does anyone remember this scene from The Matrix? In this movie, Neo is, is this computer hacker guy. And these people come to him and they tell him, you've been living in a dream world. You're not really making any of your own decisions. You're not really doing any of the things you're doing. Everything is determined for you. And then at one point, uh, the character Morpheus says, Neo, do you believe in fate? And Neo says, no. He says, why not? And he says, because I don't like the idea that I'm not deciding things for myself. Can anyone resonate with that? I don't like the idea that I'm not deciding things for myself. Now, we'll set aside for a moment that philosophically, 
the fact that you don't like something is the worst idea to believe or not believe in it. The worst reason, right? There's a lot of things I don't like, but they're true. We'll set that aside for a minute. But I think there's a part of us that we, we want our decisions to matter. We want to believe that we're in control of our lives. And I think that's actually what he said. I don't like to believe that I'm not in control of my life. The challenge of this is that the whole point of the Scripture is that we're supposed to yield control of our life to God. The whole point of faith is that we trust God to be the Lord of our life rather than ourselves. And so I want to suggest to you that this this way of looking at it, free will versus predestination, is not really a helpful way of looking at it. Because even if we do have free will, the goal of our will in Christ is to submit our will to God, just like Jesus did. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was about to go to the cross? He was about to go and give his life to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. And he's in the garden and he's weeping and he's crying. And it says he's sweating blood. His sweat is like drops of blood. And he says, Father, may this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering. He says, is there any other way, Father? And yet, not my will, but yours be done. And so I just think this is the the wrong way of framing it. So what is Paul and what is ultimately the Holy Spirit and the Lord trying to teach us through this word predestination and through this passage here? And we've got two words that we really need to define here. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so we need to know what does foreknew mean and what does predestined mean? And then how do we understand them in our own lives? So this word foreknew, uh, I'm going to show you uh, a little bit about how this word is used in different places in Scripture. But one of the things that a lot of people say is, oh, God knew ahead of time who was going to put their faith in him and who wasn't, Right? God knew who was going to have faith and who wasn't. God was going to know who, who was going to live their life for the Lord and who wasn't. And, you know, that may or may, I think that's true. I don't think that's what this is talking about. Because part of it is like this. What that would suggest is that God knew essentially who was going to be a good person and who was going to be a bad person. And then he was going to predestine the good people and not predestine the bad people. But, We've just spent the last few months looking at Romans where Paul is explaining how none of us are saved by our own works. None of us are saved because one of us is better than another. No one in this room who has a relationship with Jesus has that relationship because you or I were better than other people. In fact, Paul says in chapter 3 that uh, no one is righteous, not even one. In fact, no one even seeks God. So it's not even that God said, oh, I, I knew that, I knew Horacio, I knew you were going to seek me out. Because Paul makes clear, nobody seeks out God. None of us. God is the one who's always initiating that loving relationship. So what is he talking about? Well, you guys, any of you grow up with the King James version of the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I remember hearing... Uh, this verse in Genesis where Adam knew Eve and she conceived. 
There was Adam in the Garden of Eden. There was Eve, and he's like, hi, nice to meet you. And then she was pregnant. He knew her, and she conceived, right? No. No. This word means to have an intimate relationship with someone. Intimate knowledge. Intimate um, um, loving interaction, right? And in this case, very literally means to have sex with someone. In this case, right? But look at this in Amos 3 where God tells Israel, you only have I known of all the families on earth. Is God blissfully ignorant of all the other families on earth? God doesn't know who they are. God's never heard of the Amalekites. God's never heard of the Jebusites. God's never heard of the Egyptians. No. God knows all the families on earth but he knows only Israel. He has only with Israel this intimate, deep relationship. This deep kind of knowing that goes beyond simply awareness. And even in the New Testament, the same word that's used in Romans 8 is used in Acts 26. And Paul talks about how the Jews have known me for a long time. Oh, it didn't switch over. Not just that they've heard of him, Not that they've heard of him for a long time, but Paul was in deep, intimate relationship with the Jewish people. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was the one who was sent out by the Jewish authorities to actually go and and arrest members of the church, to put them on trial, and in some cases even to kill them. This is not that Paul had met the Jewish people. It's that he was known by them. And in the same way, In Romans 11, God did not reject his people. Here he's talking about Israel. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. Whom he knew from before. So when it says that God has foreknown those he foreknew, it's saying those that God had determined to have intimate relationship with from before. Now, we don't yet know when the before is, but it was certainly before now, and it was certainly before when this was written, and we'll get to when it was. But so I would define foreknew as God determining to be an intimate relationship with whoever these elect are. We're going to get to that in a minute. And I would say before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Why do I say that? Well, if we look at this passage, it says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And then in verse 30, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Well, what that says is that everyone who's glorified is justified. Everyone who's justified is called. Everyone who's called is predestined. And everyone who's predestined is foreknown. Right? Does that make sense? Because all those... He foreknew, he predestined, right? So everyone who's in one group is in the next group, in the next group, in the next group. And so what that means to me is that everyone who is justified was foreknown by God. Now, who have we read about in Romans who was justified by God? This is, you can give response if you know the answer. Who who was justified in Romans? Abraham was justified. Yeah, we could have started with believers in Christ, but all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was justified in Christ. Therefore, he's what? 
Therefore, he's called. Therefore, he's predestined. Therefore, God foreknew him. It says in Hebrews that Abel lived by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We're justified by faith. Abel lived by faith. So the second generation of human beings was called, justified, glorified. So the second generation of human beings must have been foreknown and predestined. And I don't know if you guys believe Adam and Eve will be in heaven when we get there. I think they probably will be. So, yeah, now we're going way back. And actually in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. So God intended to have an intimate relationship with you before he created the world. Okay, so what about this word predestined? It means what it sounds like it means. God gave you a destiny before. Well, why would he do that? Well, because he was committed to this intimate, loving relationship with you, and out of love for you, he wanted to give you a future. He wanted to give you a future. He wanted to give you a good future. Right? And so... This isn't about, again, like we need to set aside for a moment, how does our free will work into this and how does choice work into that? Just understand that God loves you so much that he wants to give you a future. So who are these predestined people? Well, according to the Bible, it's the ones he foreknew, it's the ones he called, it's the ones he justified, and it's the ones he glorified. Now, here's where this thing gets a little tricky is that we have to ask the question, is God doing all of these things, knowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying, is he doing that for individuals or is he doing it for a group? Does that make sense? So, for example, could God have determined ahead of time that he would have deep, intimate relationship with anyone who was in the church? And anyone who's in the church, therefore, is predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ, and therefore they are called, justified, and glorified. Or is God doing this for individuals? And this is where the tension comes. Because some people believe that God predestines the church, and some people believe that God predestines individuals. And the thing is that we have examples of both of these in the Scripture. Both of these are present. When God called his people in the Old Testament, what did he call? You remember? It was a family, right? Remember that passage in Amos? You are the only, you know, among all the families on earth, I've only known you. You know, God called a family. God called Israel. This nation of Israel was named after the father named Israel. Remember, Jacob was given a new name, Israel, and all of his children. He had 12 sons, and each of them had families, and they became clans, and they became tribes, and they became a nation. So God calls, you know, what today we call the Jewish people was actually just a family that he called. So is God just calling a group? But then we also know from Scripture that not everyone who is born of Israel is truly Israel. Not everyone who is Jewish really has faith in God. And certainly not everyone who is Jewish has put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so we also see that it wasn't just a family that he called. God actually spoke to Abraham, and he says, I'm calling you out from where you've lived with your family, and I'm calling you to a new place, and I'm going to bless the world through you. So God is also calling individuals. And then Abraham had two children, Ishmael and Isaac, and God only calls Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau, and he says, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau I hated. God only chose Jacob between Jacob and Esau. So you see that both of these dynamics are playing out throughout Scripture. And so it's a difficult question. And so what I want to say to you today is predestination is a biblical concept, okay? But there are different ways to understand that concept in the Scripture. And in our church, right here, and I would say, I would recommend this wherever you go, I don't think Christians should divide over a different opinion of how to interpret this concept. Okay? Because let me ask you this. If you get to heaven and God says to you, this is the old classic evangelism question, why should I let you into my heaven? Are you going to say, because, Lord, I had the appropriate perspective on predestination? How bad would it be if that's what you were hoping to get in on? Because even if you're right, that doesn't help you get into heaven. Right? What helps you get into heaven? Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And as far as that goes, even in this life right now, if you want to have intimacy with Jesus, and he says, abide in me as I abide in you, you want to have a relationship that's real and vibrant with Jesus, do you think it's going to be built on the foundation of you having the appropriate perspective on predestination? Is Jesus, is Jesus there? And he says, I want to be in your heart. But man, you've misinterpreted a passage. How could I possibly be, a friend of, be your friend or be your savior or, or have any kind of relationship with you? Right? That's what Jesus is most concerned about, Right? No. In fact, I would argue that though theology is incredibly important, and though doctrine is profoundly important, that doctrine pales in comparison with the simple reality of submitting your life to Jesus. If you submit your life to Jesus, the doctrine will work itself out. But we've all known plenty of people with doctrine who've never submitted to Jesus. And I think that you know, we look at different types of uh, church backgrounds, and sometimes we can be judgmental of other church backgrounds. And we can say, oh, they do this wrong, or they believe this wrong thing, or they've got that wrong. But my goodness, if you have everything right, but you don't have Jesus, it's nothing. Right? So what we do is we come to a passage like this, and we say, I want to learn more, but I don't want this to divide me from Jesus or from the people Jesus loves. Now, all that said, I have an opinion, and you can have an opinion. And there's some things in the Scripture that I do want to point out to you that might push us in one direction over the other, but again, not to be dogmatic, but just to understand. And first of all, I would just uh, remind you that uh, the Bible doesn't even talk about faith as being something that you conjure yourself. Because there are even times when we might become judgmental of others because, hey, at least we believed in Jesus. 
But Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is not of yourselves? Faith. Grammatically, it's faith that then prompts this little insert, this little interlude to say it is not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. So even your faith is not a work. It is a gift. And not only that, but in Philippians 1, 29, it said, Paul is talking to the Philippian church, and he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, we don't need to talk about the suffering part, right? We've been doing enough of that, right? But it has been granted to you to believe in him. It was something that was given to you to believe in him. Again, Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks God. And so when we get into this question of free will and predestination, it can get tricky, but I would just ask you this question. If your eternal salvation is on the line, right? Whether you are going to live eternally in condemnation or live eternally in bliss, who do you trust most to make sure you get where you need to be? I want to trust Jesus. And I would add this. For everything in my life, who do I want to be sovereign over my life? Do I want to be sovereign over my life? Or do I want the Lord to be sovereign over my life? I want the Lord to be sovereign over my life. So whether God simply is sovereign or he's inviting me to enter into his sovereignty, meaning to give up my will for his will, Either way, the end result should be the same because only, I'm going to say it strongly, only a fool would put themselves in charge when God could be in charge. Right? Do you feel that? I mean, if you trust the Lord and the Lord is good and He's wise and He's gracious, don't you want Him in charge? I know I do. So I think we cannot get overly concerned about this because we know that whatever uh, process God uses, in the end, our desire is for Him to be ruling the show. Our desire is for Him to be in charge. But what's way more important than how God does this is that what is He doing it for? And sometimes we get so caught up in, you know, am I choosing? Is God choosing? Is it my will? Is it God's will? That we forget that the whole thing is for a particular reason. It's that so that you and I, friend, you and I, at the end of the day, would look like Jesus. Would be like Jesus. Would be transformed so that it's not so much me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That the old has died and the new has come. That we are clothed in Christ. You know, all these images the Bible uses, all these metaphors and analogies and word pictures that it uses, they're all getting at the same thing. Is that the way it is now, 
I would suggest that pretty much everything in life that you have regret about, everything in life that you wish you could have done differently, everything in life that feels so overwhelming that even knowing you have Jesus, it still feels like you can't handle it, all of that stuff is when you're not looking like Jesus, and all of the best stuff is when you are looking like Jesus. So again, no matter how he does it, God loves you so much that he wanted to give you a future and your future, your destiny, your fate, if you will, is to come out of this whole process looking like Jesus. Amen? That's amazing. That is amazing. So how does God do this? Well, Now we have to go back to that Philippians passage. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That's what we've been talking about this whole uh, section of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Is that Paul is saying in in chapter 5, he says, um, Since we have been justified with faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. He says, we come to God by faith from beginning to end. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? This is the thing that's going to be revealed in us where we start to look like Jesus. Not only so, but we also boast in our sufferings. Because we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. And then he goes on to say, since we have been justified, there's that word again, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. For if, while we were God's enemies, right, not seeking him, not committing our hearts to him, not giving him our lives, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we boast in God's glory, we boast in our sufferings, and we boast in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 8, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is making us look like his son. That's the plan. He's forgiven us of our sins, and he's conforming us to the image of Christ. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs of, with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And now that glory piece comes up again. Glorified. If we share in his sufferings, we'll share in his glory. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings 
are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing. Why? Well, we talked a few weeks ago how the re- one of the reasons that our suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us is that the glory is so great, the glory is so vast, the glory is so big that any suffering we experience now can't even compete in terms of scale, in terms of weight, in terms of importance. It's not that they don't matter. It's not that they're not real. It's that they, they just, they, if you put them on a scale, they, they wouldn't even out. But we have another reason now what, that our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And it's that God is redeeming these sufferings and using them precisely to turn us into little Jesuses. What would we call little Jesuses? Oh, I know, Christians. It literally means little Christ. God is turning us into little Christs, little Christ Jesuses. And no, not like in the movie with little baby Jesus. I'm saying like you and I, you and I are supposed to be looking like Jesus walking around. And Ileana said in her, uh, when, before she prayed, she says, sometimes we're the only Bible the people will ever see. But we certainly are Christ to people. We certainly are Christ to the world. We really are a representation of Jesus to anyone who looks at us because we are little Jesuses in the making. Now, we're just interns right now. We're in training, right? This is the training ground. How did God make Jesus perfect in obedience? By suffering. So we will share in his glory if we will also share in his sufferings. We have to go through the same path Jesus went. And I mentioned last week, I think it was last week, there's three types of suffering that Paul talks about in Romans 8. He talks about just the sufferings of being in a fallen world, just the natural stuff. Things like everything from you skin it, you, yeah, you fall and you scrape your knee, to there's diseases because we live in a fallen world. You know, there's hardship, uh, you know, work. The toil of, of, of tilling the land is hard. There's thorns and thistles and briars, right? This is part of that curse. There's increased pain and, and childbearing. You know, this is just part of living in this world, in a fallen world. And then there is the suffering that comes from your own sin. And it's incredible to think that God is actually using your sin. That suffering is also being used to make you more like Jesus. We're going to get to it. I guess not next week, but the week after. But Paul lists this whole, uh, there's a whole list of things in verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And we might look at that list and say, oh, those are some bad things. But what Paul's readers would have heard is, wait, those are all the judgments of God in the Old Testament for sin. Paul says, are these things going to keep us from God? Are these things going to keep us from the love of Christ? No, because God has overcome sin. And not only has he overcome it, but he is, this is going to sound weird, he's redeeming it by using that also to make you look more like Jesus. I think we could all imagine something horrible we've done 
that if we hadn't done it, we wouldn't have learned something and grown in a certain way that makes us more like Jesus. And there's a part of us that would change that in a moment, but then on deeper reflection, we'd say, wait, I don't know if I would change that because then I wouldn't have the life with God that I have now. Some of you wouldn't even be Christians. All of us wouldn't even be Christians if we weren't steeped in sin first. Because the gospel has no power. The good news means nothing without the horrible news that our sin is destroying our lives for now and forever. So God is using our sin to make us look more like Jesus. And then the third thing, he's using even our righteousness to bring suffering that makes us look more like Jesus. Jesus says, if you follow me, you'll be persecuted because I was persecuted. Right? It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, for doing good. So whether you do bad, good, or nothing at all, you're still going to suffer, right? You cannot choose in this world, uh, I opt out. I opt out of suffering. All you can choose is when you have suffering come your way, how are you going to approach it? Are you going to let it do its work to make you look more like Jesus? Or are you going to resist that work and not learn the lesson? Now, here's the last thing I want to say, and then I actually want to give a little bit of time for some questions because there's probably questions. But it says, uh, for those he uh, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And up there, there's a period, but in your Bible, there's a comma. And after that, it says that he, Jesus, the son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So why is God doing this? We asked, we asked, what is he doing? He's predestining you to look like Jesus. Why is he doing it? So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, he's doing it because Jesus is glorified when more of us look like him. And we live in a very egocentric culture. And, um, you know, we love to even sing songs about how, and, and I, uh, there's a song that, that I do like, and I, it, it's not that it's wrong, but there's this line, and the line's not wrong, but sometimes it just hits me the wrong way. It's that song, um, uh, crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a, th- like a what? Rose, trampled on the ground. You took, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And part of me wants to say, except you thought of yourself more than you thought of me. It's that God actually thinks of himself and his glory and his, his honor more than he thinks of you. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. I want to illustrate it, and then I want to explain why it's not a bad thing, and then I'll be done, I promise. All right, I don't have all these on the slides, but I just want to read a few Bible verses for you. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God gives this prophetic word to Ezekiel for the people of Israel. And he says, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Sovereign just means the one who reigns. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show you the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The, names you, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. When I am proved holy 
through you before their eyes. God says, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. In Isaiah 48, it says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For my own name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you. God says, I could pour judgment out on you, but I'm being gracious. But I'm not being gracious just for you. I'm being gracious for me. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Right? Suffering. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. We already read in Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have, we are suffering for Him. For Him. 2 Timothy, uh, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the way, it comes up again by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the last one in this vein, 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And it's again, there's this greater glory that's greater than our sufferings. And it's not just our glory. It's actually our participation in His glory. This is what's so important. If God thought of you above Himself, that would actually be worse for you because the only glory we hope to ever have is His glory. And so when He increases His glory, that's the best thing He could do for us. When God increases the renown of His own name, That's the best thing he could do for us. And it's kind of like that old adage, like when you have children, our culture is tempted and it does this. Sometimes we make our children the most important things in our lives. That's the worst thing we can do for our children because they learn a very broken view of how the world should be and is. Our children are not supposed to be elevated as the most important. Our family should not revolve around our children. Our children should be integrated into a healthy family that revolves around Christ. If the best thing we can do for our children is to teach them to put Christ first, then the best thing God can do for himself is to do the same thing, is to put himself first. Because when he is right and good and honored and glorified, then we all benefit because the only glory we'll ever have is the glory we have in him. Does that make sense? So my takeaway is simply this. God is using everything, suffering, sin, victory, failure, to make us more like Jesus so that we will be glorified with him. 
That's the point. God intends for you to be glorified with him. That's why he does all this. And the way that he does it is that he makes you look more like Jesus through the difficult things that you face in life. It literally is, in the truest sense, like iron sharpening iron. It truly is like a gardener pruning away the, the branches that don't bear fruit so that the plant can bear more fruit in the future. It truly is that reality where, you know, he is the potter and we are the clay and he forms us and shapes us into the shape that he wants us to have so that we can be best used and be most honored. It truly is, again, that metaphor of uh, God, is, God is coming and he's breaking down walls and ripping out ceilings and you know whatever he can to make your little life become this grand and beautiful building. And it can't happen without breaking things and tearing things off and stripping things away and reshaping things. It just can't. But praise God, he redeems all of them and he uses them for your good because you love him and you are called according to his purpose. And so there's this kind of call that goes out and everyone receives it. The call to follow Christ. And everyone does receive the call. But there is also, the Bible talks of this other call, which is the call just of those who have their faith in him. Only of those who will be justified and glorified. And if you are called, if you trust him, you're called. And by the way, you don't know who would or wouldn't be called. Whether you believe in predestination or not, you have no idea who will answer that call. And so you issue the call to everyone. But there is that call that results in you looking like Jesus at the end of the day. And what a glorious thing that is. Amen. Now, I know I'm looking at the clock, but I just know that there could very well be some questions about what we talked in the beginning or at the end, you know, whether it's about this whole predestination thing or we're kind of going to be turning the, the corner on this whole conversation we've had the last month on suffering. And so if you have any questions, you know, just pop your hand up right now and I'll take a stab at it. I might even have a mildly coherent answer. Jennifer. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. 
Yeah, let me take a stab at that. Uh, so what Jennifer is saying is she said, I shared this testimony a few weeks ago. I was a drug addict for, what, 20 years, two decades, 25 years. Was, this, was I predestined for that? Did God, did God cause this to happen? And she says, I see how God uses that in my life to minister to people, but is that what he intended? So I would say a couple of things. First of all, biblically, predestination as best I can tell, everywhere I see it, and also the word election, you'll see that in other places, it's always referring to salvation. The Bible never says that God predestines you to, like God didn't say that he predestined you to wear the outfit you're wearing this morning. God doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that God predestined you to be a drug addict. That, that doesn't happen in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a part of God's plan. It just means that biblically that word, those words, are only used about salvation. So it's important for us to use them the way the Bible uses them. Now, whether it's part of God's plan, you know, we have this, um, this concept in Scripture where there are evil forces attacking us, intending harm for us, and God intending good for us, and somehow it seems that both of them have a, a, pro, a part of that process. Uh, and then even our own choices have a part of that process. So, for example, you know the story of Joseph where he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And he's taken captive into Egypt. And he's put in prison. And then he becomes the second in command of Egypt. And then he, through his prophetic words, there's uh, grain that's stored for seven years of famine. And then because the grain is stored, the Jacob and his family come to Israel so they don't starve and they get grain and they're put into a prominent position in Egypt and they're given land to have their flocks and their herds. And the family of God, the promises of God, the gospel itself in a sense is saved because Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then when Jacob dies, the brothers come to him and say, have mercy on us now that our father has died, do not judge us harshly. And Joseph says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I have no idea how to figure out how that works. But they intended evil, and God intended good in the exact same thing. And the only other quick example that we'll all probably remember is the story of Job. And I talked about this last week, I think. The story of Job where God, God says, hey, Satan, come here. Check out Job. Like, Satan wasn't even thinking about Job until God points him out. And, Job, and Satan says, oh, he only loves you because you're good to him. And he says, want to bet? Let's find out. You can do whatever you, ultimately he says, you can do whatever you want to him, just don't kill him. And Job goes through a horrible mess, horrible, horrible loss, destruction, loses his children. I mean, losing your herds is one thing. Losing your children to the point that he's told by his wife to just curse God and die. And Job doesn't do it. Now, there's a whole thing there, and I think I'm going to do a little mini-series on Job, but the point is at the end, not only Job gets all his things back, but in the end, uh, God essentially makes Job a priest. He has Job sacrificed for his friends. The ones who had what we would probably call good theology are the ones who have to bring a sacrifice to get forgiveness from God for the way they treated Job. And Job sacrifices so they'll be forgiven of their sins. Who did it? Did Satan do it or did God do it? 
Yes. Yes. I don't know how to parse it out, but I don't have to. Not because it doesn't matter to you. I don't want to minimize that at all. But I don't have to because I'm not the one responsible for making it work. So at some level, I simply have to say, Lord, I just trust you. Just rest in that and trust you. Is that helpful? Good. Good. Any other questions before we move on from any of this? You guys had it all figured out already, right? It's a waste of a, waste of a sermon. Oh, now you've got it figured out, right? No. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Yeah, it's amazing how the most complicated things can be brought down to the simplest of realities. You guys have heard, pray like it all depends on God and act like it all depends on you. Have you heard that before? Pray like it all depends on God and act like it all depends on you. The point is like, yes, pray and then do something. And the thing is like, if you're a philosopher, that'll drive you nuts. But if you pray and then act, it just makes perfect sense. It's like, oh, I can't do this on my own. I'm going to pray my heart out. And then I can't just sit here on my knees forever. I need to go do something. And God will use it. I don't know what he's going to use until I start doing it. In practice, there's no conflict. But again, if you have a philosophical mind, it'll drive you nuts. It'll take you crazy. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, whatever that could possibly mean, right? <laughs> My goodness, there's a whole, I mean, the whole uh, host of questions around how that plays out too. But however it plays out, it's true and it's good and you can trust it. You can trust it. I think that's the other thing is just to remember when you don't know what the answer is, you can still trust God. That's what Job found. Job said, God, why am I suffering? Why is this happening? You know what God said to Job? I'm sorry, who are you? I don't have to answer to you. Were you there when I formed the foundations of the world? Are you the one who keeps the Leviathan locked in the deep? Are you the one who has a storehouse of rain and snow to fall on the earth? I didn't think so. I'll take care of my business and you trust me. He was kind of harsh with Job. But, again, in the end, Job is the priest. Job is the one who's got it all figured out. So his harshness is not a rejection of Job. He's, put it, he's reminding Job of his own glory, of his own renown, of his own fame, so that Job can be right-sized before God. Sometimes we get really small before God. Oh, God, I don't deserve your love. Sometimes we get really big before God. You have to tell me what's going on. We should be right-sized before God. God, I receive your grace. I know I'm not you but I trust you. Does that help? All right. Yeah. Yeah.